Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Hello, everybody. Hello, hello, hello. Good evening, everybody. Hi there. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction Reading Series here at KGB. I am David Mercurio Rivera, uh, subbing today for Matt Kressel, who is currently lounging away on a sunny beach in Barbados. Boo. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Ellen, for letting me fill in. A uh, little background on our reading series. Uh, the Fantastic Fiction uh, series at KGB is currently read, uh, is uh, a series that takes place every third Wednesday of the month uh, here at this famous KGB bar in Manhattan. Uh, Terry Biston and Alice K. Turner started the series back in the late 90s, and it's been going strong ever since, uh, lately under the auspices of Matt and Ellen. Uh, the reading series features luminaries and up-and-comers in speculative fiction, and we have two fabulous readers tonight, Gemma Files and Carola DeBell. Uh, De uh, admission is always free, uh, so the, the bar allows us to hold the readings here without any charge. Uh, we only request that you support the bar uh, by ordering a drink, either alcoholic or non-alcoholic and tipping our terrific bartenders. Yay. So also, books are available in the back. Uh, Word is here helping us. Jill in the back has <laughs> books by our two readers. So feel free to go ahead, buy the books, have them autographed at the intermission or at the end of the uh, reading tonight. So with that, we can get started. Uh, let's start with our, our first reader tonight is Carola DeBell. Carola DeBell, uh, her, her book, The Only Ones, her, is her debut novel, and it was included in Nancy Hightower's uh, Washington Post Top 5 Science Fiction and Fantasy Novels of 2015, and by NPR's Jason Heller in his Best Books of 2015. Her fiction has appeared in The New Yorker, Paris Review, Black Clock, and Fence, and her rock criticism and other journalism mostly appears in The Village Voice. So ladies and gentlemen, Carola DeBell. say before I start, I've, I've spent a few years saying, telling people, um, yes, my novel is about a relationship between clones, and then, no, come back, come back, and, uh, and it's a relief to be reading, reading uh, to a crowd that's more like, and that's, that's all you got? On uh, the scene, I'm I'm going to read, five cloned human embryos are about to be implanted 
in a sort of Rube Goldberg-style artificial uterus, which actually has a very good track record with cats. The cloner is an alcoholic veterinarian named Radden Sachs, the barely literate Queen's teenager who's being cloned and who narrates is what's known as a Sylvain Hardy, which means she's radically immune in a very sick world. She earns her living selling her own blood and body parts and has also been a test subject and a prostitute, so this is a good job. The client, Rini Joffer, lost her family in the last flu and hopes to start a new one if this works. You're going to see uh, Janet Delees, Lucas, or locals, and you're going to hear people talking about viables, which is what Radden makes everybody call embryos. They had a, a frame for it to hang from, which was on wheels, and there were springs. They don't want me in the room with it, but they made a window in the wall so I could see pretty good. The room has to be dark, but they need to see too, so they put in special orange lights. The lights worked. The backup generator worked. The backup for the backup generator worked. They gave me a shot, set me up on IV, did a few dry runs with my blood. Okay. The tubing worked. They called Rini where she's staying in Goshen. The shady OBGYN and Lucas are ready in the tank room with Radden when Rini gets to the farm, looking very pale. She went up to the tank room window with those great big steps she takes, and Radden showed her the viables through the windows in dishes. He wore a bubble suit. So did Lucas. The OBGYM wore a green suit and mask. Rini nods at all of them, then extra to Radden, and he starts. She already picked the names out. She made Radden write them on the tank. Ani, Bertha, Chi-Chi, Lily, and Madur. She sat beside me on the sofa. This first part will take a few hours. They will squeeze the viables down tubes till they get to the tank. One viable to each section, five sections. The next part, they got no idea how long it will take. We only will know when the wire lights up, if it does. Each section got a special wire that Radden dreamed up. They wanted to be as regular as it could, but the regular way, this totally does not happen, but Who's going to say no to that? The regular way, you've got to wait a long time to find out if the nesting worked. Lily died right away. Radden thought a new viable, squeezed it down a new tube, but she died too. So it is a problem with the section. They left it empty. I was really worried. Rini will be mad with grief the way she gets, but she was okay. Ani, Bertha, Chichi, Mador. She even was okay when they had to replace Chichi. They call the replacement Chichi. <laughs> Rini took my hand. Janet Delise put sandwiches on a card table. The OBGYN came out for break, ate one. 
Rini ate nothing. I had to eat my sandwich with the hand she didn't hold. I took a nap with her holding it. Berta lit up first. Later, Radden said that's when he knew it's going to work. Janice said, it's bad luck to say that, but what did she know? What did any of us know? We never did anything like this, none of us, even Rowden. We don't even know when Ani and Medora stuck. Like, one minute, nothing. The next, they stuck. They lit up. Now everyone is getting excited. Will it work with Chi-Chi? Not, we're not supposed to shout, but when Chi-Chi lit up, though, we did. Even me. Everyone really liked Chi-Chi. Four lights show up in four sections of the tank. They all goddamn worked, said Radden. Except Lily. We aren't supposed to go in the room for five days. Then Rini was allowed to play at pay a visit. I'm not supposed to go in the tank room at all because I might bond. But I went in with Rini because someone had to. They made us wear masks in case we give the viable something even though the tank was airtight, and come on, these are Sylvain Hardys, even if you couldn't see them yet. It was nice in the tank room, though. It was so dark and warm. Rini said, Ani is mine. I must have one, she said. If one of them dies, though, whichever it is, I get the one who dies. We already went through this, and Radden said, just humor her. They aren't going to all survive. And come on, what are you going to do with a kid, right? Vinny was happy but nervous. I wasn't nervous. I was interested. Nothing I ever did is as interesting as this. Robin was so interested, he kept dropping things. He was so interested, his brother Henry had to come down from Albany to help. We all sat in a row in the rec room. Radden and me on sofas, Henry in his wheelchair, watching the monitor. We drank coffee, beverages, donuts, chips. Like watching the grass grow, Henry said. The feeding traffic is arranged like this. They stick the IV in my arm with two sites, which ran both ways, out, then in, attached to bags. One bag took my blood, which got things in it to nourish. The viables. The other bag brought the used blood back from them. The used blood got hung in a bag from my IV, piped back to me. I can't keep giving blood without getting blood back. I had to stay alive too, or it's not going to work. Well, we've been doing this for three weeks now, and I am. Ani, Berta, Chichi, and Medora too. Whoa! Rodden is waking me up. I come see! The viable's got tails. Rini is at the monitor. She says they look cute. Henry said they look like shrimp. I never <laughs> saw shrimp, but who cares? Just let me go back to sleep. It's November. It already snowed. It's the hormones, bro. I heard Henry tell Radden. How tired she feels is a good sign. Radden worries I'm going into shock from toxins. Bro. It's regular. Rodden would like to filter the blood coming back to me, but that would mess with the hormones. The hormones is a message the viable sent to me like, I conk out. 
breast hurt very bad. It worked. Don't worry, bro. Henry pats Radden's hand. She'll stay alive. So far, so good. Minnie had a business emergency and went back to Toronto. Henry rig up a special vid phone in the rec room so she can call night or day. We got an emergency too. An unknown van sets up the old system alarm at the gate. It's an inspector. Radden says, everyone be quiet as a goddamn mouse. Shuts the rec room door tight and went up to deal with things. Janet got scared. Radden got silly. He wheels right up to the window and is whispering to the tank, Gee, gee, I heard that. You are so grounded. Everyone got the giggles then, even Janet. But after that, she was spooked and did not want me to leave the basement at all in case somebody sees me and asks questions. For God's sake, Radden says. You can't shut a person in a basement for nine months, Henry said. Afraid she'll get sick, bro? That got a good laugh. It's December. Radden sent Lucas off. He was getting on everybody's nerves how much staring he'd been doing. Stares at me, then the viables, and the mind the me, viables, then into space. When he's gone, Janet starts doing it. Oh, no, not you two, Janet. Radden goes, Janet, they are as different from her as I am from Henry. If they're her, I'm Henry. Yes, we do have things in common because we're goddamn twins. But that's all a goddamn is. She kept doing it, though. What do you think, I? Henry said. Are they you? I just said, whatever. I don't even know what the big deal is, who is who. They could be me if they want. Why would they want? Henry called me I. Radden, too. Rad Rini called me Inez. Janet didn't call me anything most of the time. Whoa! Rini's on the phone in the middle of the night. She calls at all hours. Are they still alive? Yes, Rini. They're still alive. Radden didn't sleep most of the time, so he took the call. I'm on the sofa with the ivy cart beside me. Henry's in his wheelchair. Sometimes she just wants to change her mind about who will get what child. Just tell her whatever. She was the only one who thought they will all be born. And to tell the truth, just before Christmas, the one called Berta died. Nobody even knew why. She was 10 weeks in. Rini wanted to come down from Toronto, but Radden said, what is the point? He pulled what is left of Berta in the freezer. So there are three left, and none of them were mine. Henry went to Quarryville. He had a job. It snowed. I missed Berta. Man, I cried. Rand says it's the hormones. Lamini asked me how I feel. I cried on the phone. Why would I miss Berta? Twelve weeks in. Maybe it was Ani I missed. She was still alive, but she's not mine anymore because she had to replace Berta. To tell the truth, I never took it serious, will Ani be mine? I didn't even know what it meant. On New Year's Eve, Janet heard horses, and we shut the rec room door. And Janet stayed with me in the room, quiet as a mouse, while Radden waited upstairs with the shotgun. False alarm. There is also a false alarm, a 
about this new virus that started in Mumbai hitting Ottawa, where Rini had gone for a meeting, but it took weeks till they figured it out, and all that time she's stuck in quarantine. It is not a false alarm in Macau, wherever that even is. Run rigged up a TV signal to the monitor so we could follow the news. Mumbai virus took half Macau, then it went to what they call Taipei. Then a big jump, and Mumbai virus took out what's left of Luzon after the Luzon virus that started there and went all the way to Toronto, where it killed Rini, Rini's original four daughters in one month. She kept calling from Ottawa because what else is she going to do from quarantine? I told her, Ani, Chi-Chi, and Madora are still alive, but she wants to know how I am. I said, tired. She said, put Radin on. He yelled at her, Rainy, she doesn't want the goddamn child. And he is right. What am I going to do with the kid, the life I live? I watch Ani very careful, though. She moved. 16 weeks in. When Rini called, I told her, Ani moved. She wanted to hear about Madur. I told her, Madur moved too, Chi Chi too. Between you and me though, Madur moved the best. It snowed again. She's a little smaller than my hand. They all were 19 weeks in. It's not a false alarm in Seattle. 200 cases of the virus confirmed, so it hit mainland. It snowed and rained, rained and snow. I had a really deep sleep, and when I woke up, Chi-Chi was dead in the tank. Rini drove straight down from Toronto, which took four days with border problems and the weather. When she got to the farm, she strode into the rec room like a big curtain, walked up to the window, and scratched her cheek till blood drip on her clothes, it drip on the floor. She tore her clothes. She began to walk up and down the rec room, holding up her bloody hands and making a noise. It was awful. Radden went upstairs. When he came back, he was drunk. Get her out of here, he said. They undid my hookup and set up my heartbeat on a loop, and I went with Rini for a drive. It was almost five months since I even went outdoors. We looked at scenery. It was cold and wet. Well, we got back to the farm. She was raving and moaning again. It's like even looking at the ones who were still alive. She got nervous thinking of the ones who weren't. Chi-Chi, Bertha, Lily. Maybe she's thinking of her original kids. These had heartbeats. Radden was drunk. He kept drinking. Even after Rini finally left, he was even popping pills. Janet Delise was concerned because Radden goes off the deep end, the whole thing wouldn't work. Sometimes we have to remind him to even check the IV bags. Janet called Henry in Albany who said, give him a project that usually works. The only project anyone could think of is clone more viables. And by the time he finished using up the soma and eggs in the freezers, he was sober. And 32 little viables is in the freezer. Maybe you think, Wait a minute, how ethical is that? 32 viables ready to be born just so Radden will stay sober? I'm going to get back to you on that. For now, it's 22 weeks in, and Ani is blinking, 
and I wasn't feeling so great. Generally, it is Rini who calls to say, did Inez have her milk process? Did she have nourishment? Now she's forgetting to call. Ram is getting on my nerves. He can't give up this toxin business. What if there is a late-term toxin that is going to kill me now? Oh, shut up, Radden. I've been exposed to everything, and now I'm going to die from Ani and Madur, who are not even born. But I'm getting ahead of myself because Ani died in the tank at 26 weeks, so Madur was the only one. Rini drove down the farm. Everyone is worried. Here we go with the cheeks. But she did not even have fresh blood, just old scabs from Chi-Chi. She took my face in her hands. She did not scratch my cheeks. She just looked down at me. Then she unhooked me, took my hand, and we went upstairs to tell Radden he could only freeze a small part of Ani, of what's left of Ani, and the rest we would burn to ashes in a ceremony in the woods. We all went, even Radden. Then Rini took me for a long drive to a hilltop where there was old farm, or used to be farm, which was burnt, and we got out and threw Annie's ashes. By now it's spring already, but windy, and Rini turned to me and shouted in the wind with all her skirts and veils flapping hard, you must promise me if something happens to me, you will take the child. What could happen? I shouted back, but to tell the truth, she looked like death. She's ash white, her lips are purple, it's big black, shadows, hollows round her eyes, promise. Finally, I said, Rini, I don't think you get this. I didn't think I'd be that good a mother. The only thing worth anything about me, after all I've been through, I'm still alive didn't even pass it on to Ani, who was originally mine. Oh, you must promise. And she hung so tough that in the end, I promised if anything happened, I would take her child. I mean, what are the chances, right? But everything the two of us said here is going to be a very important environmental factor for what happens in the end. For now, she brought me back to farm, we went back to Toronto to make preparations. Madhur's birth was approaching. She had to start work on the shady papers. Ram was going nuts. You can't leave. It is the last trimester. The birth could be any time. No, I must go. So she drove off, and Rini had a plan. Okay, maybe she changed her mind, but no one could change it for her. Ram had preparations to make himself. The shady OBGYN totally disappeared. Ron himself had only delivered livestock the regular way. Then Janet Delise has a plan. It seems her cousin used to be a midwife. That might be good enough. Even with everything a regular OBGYN knew. What good is that going to do with a tank? What good would anything do? None of us knew how it's going to work. We just knew it's the 28th week and Rini's child was still alive. Janet Delise's cousin has a very wide face and middle, a gray sweater, a long skirt. Her name was Mariah Delise, and the first thing she did was pray. And she tried to get all of us to pray with her, including Radden. Radden refused. Janet and I got on our knees. Radden got drunk. I heard him shouting at Mariah Delise from the hall, she's not the mother! 
Technically, she's not even a birth mother. She's the original. Mariah Delis just shouted back, I don't care if she's the boy next door. I want her at the birth. Mariah Delis went away then till the time. Rini's out of touch. Was she even alive? Did she get sick? Mumbai just hit Chicago. Radden went on a bender. Madur was drinking, I don't know, whatever was in there with her. We had six weeks left, eight weeks, who knew how to count. No one was exactly sure how we would know the timing, but Mariah thought we didn't have to know. Madur would tell us, which she did. One day in May, the tank began to move until the frame rocked on the springs. I don't know why it did. Janet watched the rocking, checked her watch. That's way early, she said. They try to call Rini in Toronto. They call her in Ottawa. They call Mariah Delise, who showed up with a tape of women screaming, so it would be more like the regular way. Ran was furious. Someone could hear. She said, shut the door. That's what it's there for. He called Lucas to come over right away. Rini Jopper is nowhere to be found. Mariah and... Radden are looking at their watches for the timing. Janet just waited on the side. The frames are rocking. The tapes are screaming. I'm supposed to sit in the other room and breathe deep. I don't know why I was supposed to breathe deep. I wasn't the mother. I wasn't the father. I didn't know what I was. I just sat there frozen in my chair until the phone rang. It's Rini. The big foam scream was so dark, you could not see her face at all. Who is screaming? It's the tapes. I told her the baby's on the way. Rodden was screaming, do you make her get her ass here fast? I tried to make her hurry. I told her she will miss the birth. She said, something happened to her. She was in Delhi, India. Then she hung up. In Delhi, Rodden said. What's she doing in Delhi? They're dying like flies in Delhi. Shit, 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 shit. That squeezing is too weak. Rodden, uh, Lucas just showed up. The way they do the squeezing, they do it, they don't do it direct. They have a long tube around the tank that goes to a ball they squeeze. Radden gave me a shot. They drew blood from me, put it in the tank. They drew blood in the tank, put it in me in case there was a message in the blood from my door to me, which there was. I felt something in what's left of my uterus. Radden pulls a long tube out of the tank room to me, puts the ball in my hand, says squeeze each time I feel something that is good for baby's brain, but mainly could help my door pop out. The regular way, she pops out through a regular hole. What run calls sir, 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 anyhow, it didn't work. The regular hole is in a regular uterus, but this isn't regular anything. It didn't work. They are afraid to cut through and pull her out like what they do the regular way. When it doesn't come out the regular way, they try everything they could. Mariah reached her hands right in the tank and squeezed. You could see the top of the head with hair, but Mariah couldn't pull the head through. None of this hurt me. They didn't even try to make me scream. The tape screaming was already too loud. Finally, Rodney just said, turn that goddamn thing off, and Janet did. So then I heard Mariah Delise grunting and Radden muttering, dear God, and shit, shit. Then I heard Janet say, that's not her heartbeat. It was mine. They had both heartbeats, Mike, but they got the lines mixed up, and it was my heart they heard. And when they got all sorted out, they could tell something was wrong with hers. Finally, they just cut right through the track, put their hands in up the bloody wrist, and pull her out. She was still alive.
And to find out what happened, buy the goddamn book, <laughs> which is back there. And you can get Carolyn to, to uh, sign it right now. Uh, so have a drink. We'll come back in about 10 minutes and uh, enjoy yourself. Hello there. Welcome back <coughs> to Fantastic Fiction at KGB. Oh, you found it. Two-handed. I was going to do two-handed smartphones, but he found the printout. Thank you. Whose phone is which? Take them back. Thank you. Whew. Okay. <clears throat> Usually I print out the intros and the upcoming, forthcoming readers, and I forgot this time. And David just lost his list. But anyway, okay, we've got him now. Okay. <clears throat> we have some really fine readers coming up over the next several months. We have on March 16th, Rio Ewers and David Nickel. <clears throat> um, both from Canada, actually. We have the Canadians are taking over. April 20th, Elizabeth Baer and Scott Lynch. May 18th, Ellen Clagis and Victor Laval. Uh, Victor's, yeah, you might, Victor's uh, novella, um, The Ballad of Black Tom, is just out yesterday, and you may want to pick it up for either Kindle or print. Today's the 16th? Isn't today the 17th? Yeah. It was yesterday, sorry. You were wrong, because I announced it yesterday. <coughs> Um, June 15th, Mark Laidlaw and Livia Llewellyn, who has a book out. Livia's book came out yesterday, too, a collection by called Furnace. July 20th, oh, David Levine and Helen Marshall. <clears throat> I think we have August, but it says TBA, and I don't remember who. I don't remember who is August, but we do have August, part of August, at least. Sept <coughs> I'm sorry, September 21st. Laird Barron and Alyssa Wong. And that should carry us for a while, yes. So, we have a good bunch of people. <clears throat> but right now, we have Gemma Files. Right. If I start coughing, it has nothing to do with Jeff. Like, I'm sorry, I'm losing my voice. Born in England and raised in Toronto, Canada, Gemma Files has been a film critic, a teacher, and a screenwriter. Probably best known for her weird Western Hexlinger series, A Book of Tongues, A Rope of Thorns, and A Tree of Bones. She has also published two short fiction collections, two speculative poetry chapbooks, and a story cycle. We will all go down together, stories of the five family coven. Five of her stories were adapted as episodes of Showtime's The Hunger, an erotic horror anthology series produced by Tony and Ridley Scott. Her latest novel is Experimental Film, which is back there, and I recommend that you buy her book and Carol's book after this is over. So please welcome Gemma Files. Thank you, Ellen. So yeah, I was flipping through this and flipping through this and thinking, hmm, maybe I'll read something different tonight. But no, I'm going to read the same thing that I usually read. <laughs> um, Yes, yeah. So Experimental Film uh, is a book that, when I was explaining to people what it was about, I, I, would, I would preface it by, okay, so the main character, who is not me, is a former film critic and <laughs> film history teacher who lost her job around the same time that her son was diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, and, but she's not me. She's totally not me. Um, yeah. 
So it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting back and forth. Um, I can tell you for a fact that uh, I have never encountered actual ghosts. Um, no dead goddesses have become interested in me or my son yet. But uh, nevertheless, this is rooted in reality, and that's an interesting thing. Uh, earlier today, earlier uh, this year, rather, I was thinking, wow, if this actually turns out to be the best thing I ever wrote, mm, I kind of screwed the pooch because I will never be able to do this again. All right, so let's begin. You could argue as I have more than enough times as part of my film history lecture, that no matter its actual narrative content, every movie is a ghost story. A film's production forms a time capsule, becoming a static window into a particular moment of a particular era. Even period pieces often tell you more about the times they were made in than the times they depict. Think of Julie Christie's quintessentially 1960s white lipstick and modified beehive hairdo in Dr. Zhivago versus the semi-accurate vaginal wigs worn by female slaves on Starz's Spartacus series to conceal the actress's actual routine porn star-level pubic waxing. As time passes, the cast and crew go the way of all flesh, though their celluloid echoes remain, walking, talking, fighting, fucking. After enough time, every person you see on screen will have died, transformed through the magic of cinema into a collection of visible memories, light on a screen, pixels on a videotape, information on a DVD. We bring them back every time we t start up a movie and they live again reflected in our eyes. It's a cruel sort of immortality, I guess, though it probably beats the alternative. Framing is where you make your most important narrative decisions in film. That's something else I used to impress on my students or try to. What's inside the frame versus what's outside, what's actually shown versus what's only told. Of course, what that means is that I'm already at a bit of di a disadvantage here. This is a book, not a movie, so I can't really show you anything. I have to rely on my words and your imagination. I have to assume that you have one. And yes, if you're wondering, that is the sort of thing I used to say in class, far more than I should have. It may even be why I never got asked back after the Toronto Film Faculty. My old place of employment finally reconstituted itself. I don't know. I expect I never will. Life is full of these little lacunae, these empty places. Not every problem it sets is actually solvable, at least by you. Begin with action, always I tell them, which is pretty much filmmaking 101. Though you'd be amazed how few aspiring directors ever seem to have considered it. Set the scene. Every frame asks a question. Even if what you first see on screen appears to be completely static, intention already informs it, a series of choices. What do we see first? Where am I? And what's that? Why am I being shown it? What comes next? What sort of movie is this going to be? No film is ever entered into cold. Packaging alone will always tell you something. Trailers in particular are notorious for preemptively shaping a movie inside your head, providing context for content, blatantly manipulating audiences by adding music, often not in the finished product, layering snatches of dialogue against each other to make you think three lines are one, even giving away whole plot twists while the announcer's voice vies with the intertitles, each telling you what to feel and how and when. Blu-ray and DVD boxes, on the other hand, are like Rorschach blots, relying on you to supply the mood. Every still provides a window into another world. 
go small, therefore, and then smaller, smaller even than that. Think of these few paragraphs as a single frame, an aperture, a tumbler's tiny hole. Stick in the key and watch it turn. Then watch whatever opens, open. So, where am I? Some 130 miles, give or take, and almost three hours drive north from Toronto, and a numbered rural route leads off of Highway 400 into a deeper part of the province's backcountry, the Lake of the North District between Midland and Huntsville, a region old, remote, and obscure enough it's never needed a more elaborate name. Ten miles past Overdeer and three miles north of Chaste, just outside the town of Quarry Argent, lies an overgrown estate that reverted to local council ownership over 80 years ago. The empty manor house that sits silently at the center of the estate is nearly a century old, built for Mrs. Iris Dunlop Whitcomb by her doting husband, mining magnate Arthur McCalla Whitcomb. But no one calls it Whitcomb Manor or anything like that. Even on the application form submitted to Heritage Canada to have it declared a historical site, it's called simply the Vinegar House. And this is where we'll start. Why? Because this is where something important happened to me. And since I am the protagonist, not the hero, never that, of this story, it matters that I tell you about it because it will set the tone, creating shock and suspense before I double back in to fill in character details and backstory because it'll give you a taste of things to come, a valid reason to sit patiently through all of the exposition that unfortunately has to follow. What comes next? Well, as to that, you'll just have to wait, I guess, and see. But Miss Carnes, you ask? Come on now, really, what sort of movie is this going to be to which I can only answer very simply, mine. This all started a very long time ago for me, longer even than I could remember at the time, though since my mind is a black hole of influences, little that gets sucked inside its orbit ever fully escapes again because stories lie hidden inside other stories and we always know more about any given thing than we think we do, even if the only thing we think we know is nothing. For example, if I'd Googled Mrs. Whitcomb's name at the beginning, not that I would have had any reason to, here's what I would have gotten probably on the very first hit from Hugo J. Balcaris's Strange Happenings in Ontario, Hounslow, 1977. No account of Ontario's classic unsolved mysteries can be complete without making mention of the presumably lamentable fate of Mrs. Iris Dunlop Whitcomb, wife of Arthur McCalla Whitcomb, discoverer and owner of the now defunct Quarry Argent Lightning Strike Silver Mine. An avid aventure painter, photographer, collector of fairy tales, and lifelong follower of the spiritualist creed, Mrs. Whitcomb led a, had led a hermit's life since the tragically unsolved disappearance of her only child, Hyatt, who, who suffered from developmental disabilities. Though his bed was first found empty one morning in early 1908, Hyatt Whitcomb was only declared dead seven years later in 1915. Unable to persuade his wife to accompany him, Arthur Whitcomb relocated to Europe, where he funneled the money from his mining concerns into the development and manufacture of munitions, perhaps anticipating the outbreak of World War, II, World War I. Meanwhile, electing to stay in their former home until she had proof of what had happened to Hyatt, Mrs. Whitcomb pursued comfort through the overdeer-based spiritualist congregation of medium Catherine Mary Desessant for whom she bankrolled an increasingly expensive series of public fundraising events and private seances. She also took the veil 
affecting a variety of opaque and heavy full body mourning, which covered her from her habitual broad brimmed beekeeper's hat to the hem of her skirts, dressing first in all black, then all gray, and eventually all white. Although acknowledged to be kind and pleasant in person, she became a figure of superstitious legend among the children of Cory Argent, who viewed her approach with dread. On the morning of Saturday, June 22, 1918, Mrs. Wickham surprised her attendants by calling for a motor car. Wrapping herself against prying eyes, she demanded to be driven to the nearest train station, where she bought a return ticket to Toronto, waited an hour and a half for her train to arrive, then boarded. All she took with her was a sizable, rigid leather case with heavy straps, the contents of which remain unknown. After having her ticket clipped, Mrs. Wickham telegraphed ahead, informing the final station on her route, Toronto, that she would be arriving shortly and expected to find food and lodging waiting. She gave no hint of the reason for her journey and retired to her private compartment. This was the last anyone ever saw or heard of her. Thus, she disappeared from both the train and from official record completely and irrevocably. Reprinted by permission of the author. I interviewed Balcaris during my research phase, back when I was preparing to write, well, not this book, but the book I thought I was working on at the time. He was in his late 80s, physically frail, yet clear-eyed and alert, his enthusiasm for the topic wholly unwithered. He was only too happy to tell me why. Because, you see, there's a lot more to Mrs. Whitcomb's story, and I've always wanted to tell it, but I could never verify much, not directly. And Hounslow's lawyers were sadly obsessed with backing things up via documentation. Still, there was a witness to Mrs. Whitcomb's presence on that train, in a manner of speaking. In 1953, when the Whitcomb estate's funds were running out and the house was in the process of repossession, an overdear woman named Gloria Ashtuck came forward. When she was eight, she said, she'd traveled from her hometown in, to Mixted, Ontario, to visit her paternal grandmother, and had only just then realized that the train she'd been riding on had to have been the exact same train from which Mrs. Whitcomb vanished. According to Miss Ashtuck, she was on her way to the train's washrooms when she passed a first-class compartment whose interior blinds had all been carefully drawn. She paused, attracted to the comp compartment by an unfamiliar noise issuing from inside, one strange enough that she felt physically compelled to stand there for a few minutes, trying to work out what it might be it sounded mechanical, repetitious, somewhat like the rattling of chain. The sound was accompanied by an obscured yet hypnotic flickering of light leaking out through the tiny crack in the blinds. Then, as she lingered, she saw the handle of the door begin to move, something rustling around behind the blinds, as though whoever occupied the compartment were about to emerge, at which point she turned and ran all the way to the dining car where her parents were waiting, as though every devil in hell were chasing her held it all the way to Toronto, or so, so she claimed. He spread his hands ruefully, an embarrassed showman. Needless to say, nobody she told gave it much weight. The memory of a frightened eight-year-old, decades passed. As far as they were concerned, the Wickhams were all exactly as dead as the law needed them to be. What do you think she was so afraid of, I asked him. Valkyrie simply shrugged. No idea, but I can tell you this much, young lady. She stayed good and frightened right up until the day she died. Said it gave her the screaming memes just to think about it. He, weighs, he raised his wispy white eyebrows. Still, you understand the import. This was on the final approach, somewhere between Clarkson and Union. Most people uninterested in the supernatural tend to assume Mrs. Wickham simply disembarked, unseen, at another station. But if Gloria Ashtuck was correct, somebody was still in her compartment that day, well after their last chance to leave had already passed. 
I hesitated a second or two before asking the next question. I was still trying to keep my ideas confidential back then, but I had to be sure. Did you ever hear about Mrs. Whitcomb making movies? He studied me shrewdly. Funny you should ask. When they opened up the compartment in Toronto, they found exactly two things inside. One was a scorched, discolored sheet hung up by pins across the window, which was odd because, as I said, she'd already pulled all the blinds. The other, meanwhile, was the melted remains of a machine no one could easily identify, probably because it wasn't something exactly in widespread use back then, a portable film projector, one of the earliest models. I saw a drawing someone on the case had made of it and was able to connect the dots. Mr. Wickham sent his former wife a hefty allowance every few months or so, right up until the end. Makes sense she'd have been able to buy herself the very latest toys she only took a mind to. So her trunk might have contained this projector, along with a film reel, something she was going to watch while in transit? Seems likely. And given the period, that might also explain where the fire came from. In the pages of his book, spread open on the coffee table between us, Balcaris tapped a black and white photograph so grainy with crappie reproduction and age it looked like a piece of cross-stitch embroidery. Clear signs of heat damage, but very little accompanying smoke. The investigators agreed afterwards that this indicated a brief but intense conflagration, possibly chemical in nature. Oh, there were the usual rumors, of course. He waved a dismissive hand. A kidnapping gone wrong, perhaps conducted by industry-hating anarchists and Fenian protesters toting explosives, all that. But I think you and I, Ms. Carnes, are of like mind as to a far more probable cause. How much do you know about silver nitrate film? I pushed back the urge to say, it's Ms., not Mrs. Evidently, he'd seen my wedding ring and made up his own mind. It explodes. Somewhat volatile, yes, which explains why it's no longer in use, because amongst other things, the nitrocellulose stock would occasionally ignite while run through the gate of a projector. The silver in the emulsion would act as an accelerant, continuing to burn even until the film was entirely consumed and leaving very little trace behind. It doesn't require oxygen to stay alight either. It'll keep burning completely underwater at over 300 degrees. And it produces toxic gases. It was a nitrate film fire that caused the Dromgahaler burning in Ireland in 26. 48 people killed outright, many more injured, burned the entire building to the ground. That still doesn't explain what happened to Mrs. Wickham, I said. No, it obviously doesn't. But at the time, people genuinely thought the silver nitrate fires were so hot they could consume a human being entirely. Something like spontaneous human combustion, to cite another equally foolish superstition. He settled back in his armchair. Interesting you asked about her little hobby, however. Far more people making flickers at home than you might think, especially if they could afford the equipment. But that was something else they made me take out. Wasn't relevant, they said. He snorted. I came close to spilling it all then, betrayed by the excited delight you feel when you realize, yes, somebody else knows about something you thought only you had stumbled across. You finally met somebody who will understand. But at the last second, I chose not to clinging still to the dark ambition at the core of that excitement. It was my name on the line here. Valkaris had had his day. They've recently recovered a few fragments of stuff they think she might have produced, I said at last, which was not technically untrue. From 1914 to 1917 by preliminary dating. Valkaris nodded, unsurprised. Hadn't heard about films per se, but I do know she, saw, she shot footage at Kate Mary Desaissant's performances 
her thanatoscopionic resonance gatherings. <laughs> Documentary records to prove these things she and her group got up to were real. As mentioned in Valcaris's piece above, Des Essences was a North Ontario spirit medium, fairly famous at the time, somebody who followed the Fox sisters' lead and combined spiritualist beliefs with public demonstrations, though she mainly did cabinet work and ectoplasmic materialization rather than simple table wrapping. She formed the community center point for many contemporary spiritualist seekers, with Mrs. Whitcomb one of her most fervent supporters, financially and otherwise. Of course, by that time, Mrs. Whitcomb was also enmeshed with Kate Mary's little protege, the one she adopted later on, Vasek Sidlow. 15 years old at the time and sightless since birth, supposedly, Kate Mary called him an imagist, spirit photography, all that. He was gonna be her link with the new generation of spiritualists, their very own Edgar Case or what have you. And Mrs. Wickham was quite besotted with him too, though in a different way, of course. Are you saying they were involved? Oh, no, 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 he waved his hands, not on her side at least. She had a very maternal interest in young Vasek, probably because he'd been brought up in the orphanage her mother had founded. And just like with Kate Mary, she thought she might be able to get her, her close, uh, he, she thought he might be able to get her closer to solving the mystery of what had happened to poor Hyatt. But on Sidlow's side, well, she was beautiful. Everyone agrees on that. It's too bad no one ever took pictures before the veil. He was blind though, supposedly, and even so. Blind, not dead. <laughs> At the time, I thought Belcaris had gone off on a tangent, obsessing on gossip so old it was almost mummified. However, as with so much else about this story, I'd eventually find out otherwise, but not until much later. What do you think happened, I asked, flipping open the last page of my notebook. With Mrs. Whitcomb? Might have been a multitude of things, some more likely than others, but I'm inclined to think she took the easy way out, just stepped out of the wreck of her life, doffed her famous veil, and left by the doors along with everybody else. Without the veil, nobody would have ever recognized her. She'd have been free. Free to do what? Oh, I'd like to believe she settled down, changed her name, had more children. Anything but the obvious. Which is? That train was going full speed, Mrs. Carnes. To get off mid-jaunt would have been suicide, literally. But then again, maybe that's what she wanted, eh? To be with her boy again. Best case scenario, sure, if he was even dead. Exactly, we don't know, and odds are we never will. Valcaris shook his head, sighing, poor girl. Poor foolish, foolish girl. We sat there together a moment while I tried to think of some, anything else to ask, and then he leaned across the table, giving what he might have thought was a charming leer. You're very easy to talk to, my dear, he told me. Who was it you said you wrote for again? Lip weakly, I could have said at one point deep down under town had I wanted to tell the truth. Instead, I found myself blurting out before I could think better of it. Oh, well, these days, myself mainly, I guess. No publisher's contract, eh? All this work down on spec, so to speak? Not really, no, and yeah. Hmm, he patted my hand as if in consolation. Something to look forward to then. I walked back from Valcaris's cabbage town house with my mind racing eyes full of stars from suddenly re-emerging into daylight from the dim, paper-parched atmosphere of the old man's book-lined office. I was organizing words in my head, cutting and pasting, trying to figure out where I had to put what I'd just learned. Chapter one, maybe? Hmm, how long could I make people wait, trusting them to read along while I blathered towards some point without even a hint of the mysteries to come? These narrative structures have to be thought out beforehand, you see. 
strategized, methodically, according to content, because a story in the main dictates its own telling. In hindsight, it wasn't my fault that I just didn't know what kind of story I'd been dropped into, head first and kicking. That book I thought I was writing would have made my meandering parody of a career. As a former film, film critic and pseudo-film historian who'd somehow managed to stumble into teaching the subject for 10 plus years without the benefit of a film studies degree or any other sort of qualification beyond an autodidact's instincts allied with having already watched upwards of 3,000 movies while taking notes upside down, it would have been a triumphant tale of luck, anecdoted, disguised as objective fact, like almost every other Canadian cinematic text. The strange but true tale of how, while reviewing a program of experimental films shown in downtown Toronto, I had accidentally discovered that Mrs. Arthur McCalla Whitcomb had apparently made a series of early motion pictures employing special effects techniques similar to those of science fiction and fantasy film pioneer Georges Méliès, thus making her Canada's first film female filmmaker, and the Vinegar House, not only her home but her production studio, a site of great historical significance. Documentaries, awards, speaking engagements, everything, all the time. The impossible dream, that book would have been my legacy. Not this one, though. Not in the same way, which is just how things work out sometimes. Completely the opposite of how you thought they would. The chance comes, and then it's gone. The moment turns, and you don't know why. Nothing's ever the same. Still, it's not like I'm not sort of used to that happening by now. So to, uh, to find out what continues to happen to the snarky and intensely depressed Miss Lois Carnes, um, pick up the book. Uh, there's all sorts of stuff. Mystery, intrigue, creep. <laughs> Thank you very much for listening. You can pick up the book, either book back there. We have copies. Have another drink and relax and see you next month. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio, and Rajan Khanna, that's me, for the introduction and farewell. And always... Thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.